Hello, everyone, and welcome back to season two of the Preoccupation podcast. Uh, as I mentioned to you guys in the brief sort of uh, summary before the podcast was released for this season, that we'd be doing some interviews. And this is the first in the series of interviews uh, that I will be conducting. I'm here with uh, Andrew Delatola. Andrew, I hope I got your last name right. Yes, you did. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Um, you know, Andrew, I didn't actually ask you for like a, a bio or or anything else, although I feel like because we've communicated so much over the last year that I've gotten to know you quite well. Um, why don't you just go ahead and introduce yourself and then we could get right into it. Yeah, so, um, well, thank you, Basim. Um, so I'm a lecturer or assistant professor at the University of Leeds in the UK. Um, I work in the School of Languages, Cultures and Societies, um, specifically the Arabic, Islamic and Middle Eastern Studies section of the school. Um, and my research uh, focuses on issues of race and sexuality historically, as well as in the present and in particular reference to the Middle East and North Africa, um, looking very specifically at Lebanon, Syria, Egypt, and uh, Turkey. Fantastic. I um, I feel like I probably could have summarized most of that from your book, and that's the reason that we are doing this interview. Uh, Andrew's book, uh, which was one of the was one of the best books that I read uh, last year, um, and that is I have it right here. Anyone wants to see it? That's it is uh, civilization and the making of the state in Lebanon and Syria. And um, I, I want to explain to the audience that despite the fact that my podcast, at least ostensibly, focuses uh, primarily on Palestine, the implications of this book were very much felt throughout the entire Ottoman Mashriq. Um, so while, yes, you do focus on Lebanon and Syria, um, the content of the book is not exclusive to modern day Lebanon and Syria. Uh, rather than have me butcher this, Andrew, could you just provide a brief summary of the central thesis of your book? What it, what it is that you are trying to accomplish here? Oh, that's a big ask. Um, <laughs> it is, because it's, it, it's the, the book covers a lot. So that is, the, you're not exaggerating. That is a big ask. So please, just, just do your best. I will do my best. It's been a while since, I, since I've read it. Um, <laughs> I, think, I, I think when it was published, I kind of put it away and haven't, haven't really looked at it since. Um, but the book essentially makes a, a very kind of large argument that... Um, the modern state as we conceive it today is um, essentially produced in relation to European modernity and in the production of the state, the modern state in the Middle East with first um, the Tanzimat era of the Ottoman Empire and later with um, the, the mandate state system of uh, the British and the French mandates. Um, the state comes into being and, and, and is essentially reflective of the kinds of racist civilizationalist characteristics um, that, that is inherent, I would argue, to European modernity. 
And that then plays out in various ways in the state making process. And uh, one of the one of the sections that I appreciated in the book is that you actually go through, and this is something that I've uh, attempted to do, um, perhaps rather clumsily, but I've, I've, I've given it a shot. Um, it goes through an attempt to define what the state is um, and the various definitions uh, that exist. Uh, a lot of, you know, I know you're, you're Canadian, I'm Canadian as well, you grew up in Montreal, I, I live in Vancouver. Um, political science in Canada tends to focus on definitions of the state that are very administrative. Um, but while the state was encroaching upon places that had never experienced the state before, and the Ottoman Empire would be such a place, um, the state did not just feel like a change in administrative practices. Um, do, is there anything that you want to add on this before I get into some, some other questions? Yeah, so I mean, I look at the state, I think, from, um, I know this is a dirty word these days, but from a very kind of Marxist perspective. Um, mm -hmm. And what that means is I'm looking at how the state, the state is kind of a function, right? It, it's not just about the administration. Um, it's not just about kind of the national context of the state or the international context of the state but what it effectively does. And that is to provide order to a society. It's to um, look at kind of the immaterial aspects um, that are not always readily available to analyze or measure. And um, I mean, there are kind of measurable and material aspects to the state, but I would argue that it really is about kind of uh, this association, the state is this kind of association of order from disorder and organization and, and reading that into kind of a Marxist analysis um, or reading that in line with a Marxist analysis, what that effectively means is that we can't really detach the modern state from um, the period of European enlightenment and industrialization. And we can't um, detach the state either from the the kind of revolution that was happening um, with regards to family structures in the household. Um, and the state really kind of mimics those immaterial structures of the family and of the household as well. And so when we're talking about state making in this book, it's really looking at how um, those sets of relations become altered um, through through European engagement and through European interference. Yeah, that's, um, it's fascinating to me that, uh, I guess you pick up the, the definition of the state that you most, um, that most resonates with you is maybe a stage of development that is more advanced than the definition of the state that I most appreciate, which is an institution that possesses a monopoly on violence. Um, and that is one of the definitions that you do include. I, I think you cite um, Baruch Kimmerling. Uh, and that if my, I, I paid very close attention to your book. So if I got that right, I'm going to look at this after. If I got that right, then you need to take that as a massive compliment. Because <laughs> that was one of, to just give you an idea, I took several, several, several pages of notes um, from from this book. But uh, but but going, going on to that, um, or, or springboarding from that, that is a definition that I've used in the podcast and that I continue to use in my analysis of 
uh, what was happening in the Ottoman Empire, because that's the first thing that needs to happen in order for a state to manifest itself in any other way. The first thing that it needs to do and what was probably what was probably most immediately felt by the indigenous inhabitants of the Ottoman Mashriq was their um, their separation from their means of coercion. So particularly in the case of the peasants um, who are who are a uh, historically armed population in order for the Ottoman state to come into existence, their disarmament was was necessary. Right. I mean, would you agree with this? I mean, to a certain extent, yes. Right. Because there was as as the Ottoman Empire was expanding, there was this kind of change of how coercion was being negotiated. But um, the Ottoman Empire was still very much using various communities that had been armed against each other in order to retain power um, and hadn't hadn't begun began to centralize um, or attempt to, I mean, there was, of course, um, there was, of course, the slave army. Um, but then with the Tanzimat, kind of the system changes to what we would consider a modern military. And so the, the kind of social relationship that um, the, the, the army once had um, within the Ottoman Empire also shifts. Um, and and the relate the kind of economic relation and and uh, intellectual relationships that um, the my <laughs> yeah that's all, <laughs> tip that's of my all. tongue it's on the tip of my tongue the the name for that army <laughs> I don't want to continue to say slave army but um, the the Janissaries the Janissaries yes exactly there we go. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> the Janissaries held a very kind of social, a very important social, um, economic, and and also intellectual position within the Ottoman Empire. And so, with the kind of advancement of the modern military, um, that also kind of alters and get and the the kind of coercion that is then used is is changed as well. And what uh, what I've argued uh, again, not just in uh, in the podcast, but in um in talks that I've, I've recently given locally here in the Vancouver circuit, is that uh, prior to the Tanzimat, um, there was no such thing as an Ottoman state. And, and I'm, I'm also using my definition of the state in order to make, to make that argument. Uh, and the way that I've hopefully helped um, help people understand what I'm saying by that is, if you imagine like a cell phone coverage map, you know, like your various providers, and they show where you have cell phone service, the modern state would be totally filled in. Because in every single corner of Canada, in this case, right, in, the, in, in my context, the state is sovereign. They have a monopoly on violence wherever, wherever you are. Whereas in the Ottoman Empire, you had a, a map that would appear much more almost vascular, like a, um, in, the, in the urban centers and the roads that connect them, uh, they could provide law, order, safety, security, and they monopolized violence, they controlled the means of coercion. But outside of that, they, they, even, in some, even in some cases that are rather comedic, like uh, Jebel Edruz in, in, in modern day Lebanon, even there, um, they they couldn't uh, and in in uh, Huran in Syria or something like that uh, they didn't have a uh, monopoly on violence 
and and not only did not, but could not. <laughs> they weren't capable of it. Um, so would would you agree with that definition that prior to the Tanzimat, that something resembling an Ottoman state was more of a fiction than a reality? I would, yeah, I would agree with that um, because the just as you said, right there, there, there were pockets of. I mean, the Ottoman Empire had this control, this kind of wide-ranging control over such a vast territory and different populations. But there were pockets that the Ottoman Empire negotiated with rather than tried to enforce themselves on. Right. Um, and we see that to a certain extent with Jabal al-Druz, we see that with the Horan, we see that with, in, in some cases, with the Bedouin communities, um, just to kind of secure passages that were economically, politically, and militarily uh, beneficial for for continued control, um, and of course, right, those communities got things in return in terms of relative autonomy in, in certain aspects, or um, or paid off in certain ways, or were protected from their enemies in other ways. And so, this was a very kind of negotiated settlement that um, doesn't reflect how we would conceptualize the centralized state today. Um, right. If anything, I would say it's more like a confederacy, mm -hmm. almost, um, where it's possible that different parts of, of the confederation would have different kind of relations with, with the central power. Um, thinking about Canada again, right? Quebec and, and, right. <laughs> and the federal government has a right. very different set of relations with uh, than, than the other provinces. Um, but... Um, yeah, you know, it was functioning in a way that was antithetical in so many ways to what the modern state, how we conceptualize it today, but also how it was being conceptualized in the late 19th century in Europe. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and I think that was in particular one of the big problems that that the European powers had was that they couldn't, they couldn't make sense of it. They just continue to see it as disordered and as chaotic um, and and wanted so badly to organize it in a way that kind of allowed them to um, further their their interests in the region. That's a, a fantastic kind of transition here into some of the other questions that I want to ask you. Um, I should I should clarify to you at this point that while we are recording this before I have released the other uh, the episodes that I, I plan on releasing for the season, that when I actually post this, it will be posted after. And, and the reason why I'm doing that is because um, I go into pretty great lengths, uh, go into a lot of detail about the Tanzimat, about the um, the incentives for the Tanzimat, both both. Uh, forced incentives <laughs> and and um, the the way that they were experienced and understood by the indigenous populations and by the high port. And so um, the questions that I have kind of assume that the listener has already heard all of those um, has already heard all of those episodes. So one of the things that I don't get into a lot is the idea of the new Ottoman. The Ottomans go on this massive campaign of Ottomanization, what they call Osmanlik uh, in Arabic, al Uthmaniyya. And it's really a central objective of the Tanzimat. 
um, to create an Ottoman identity where one previously did not exist. This is one of the, I think this is one of the hardest things for us to understand in the modern Middle East today because of the various identities that we've been carrying around, we as the, you know, modern, the inheritors of the, of the modern Middle East, various identities that we've been carrying around. The Ottoman identity is one of the few that we left behind. We don't, we don't hold many legacies of that now. Um, so what we know is that after 200 years of nationalism, we could see that there is a relationship between national identities and the technologies of modernity, we understand kind of the mechanics of how a national identity emerges. Again, that's one of the things that I go to in the podcast. So I focus a lot on how Ottomanism was to be, um, as, uh, Ottomanism was to be created. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the Ottoman Empire wanted the Ottoman citizen to be? What was the, the new Ottoman gentleman supposed to look like? Yeah, and I think, um, you know, there are, there are various stages of this, right? Um, and it's not always so clear cut, but there was in, the, in, in kind of the earlier um, period of the 19th century in particular with, in relation to um, the, the first Tanzimat in um, 1939, there arose... Um, 1839. 1839, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> different, things different things happening in 1939. <laughs> uh, 1839. Um, so with the first Tanzimat in 1839, um, there, there comes about a new kind of a new national discourse. Um, it's a little bit of a fringe party that emerges and it's made up of various elites from around the Ottoman Empire. Um, and they, they call themselves the Young Ottomans. Um, mm -hmm. And this, this group to the extent to which they, um, to the extent to which they had a kind of great um, impact on the Ottoman Empire is, I think, debatable. But they really kind of set the foundation for the development of Ottomanism later on in in, in the nineteenth century and as the as the empire was collapsing. Um, and what they were doing was they were seeing how they could not they could not hold the Ottoman Empire as it was prior to the 19th century. Um, and so they were in, in kind of a dialectic with European modernity to a certain extent saying, well, these are the changes that we do have to go through. It's gonna be painful, um, but in doing so, maybe then we can join the civilized world. Um, and part of that was not just kind of administrative um, administrative moder modernization through the Tanzimat, but also the development of an identity that um, really kind of hunkered down and focused in on um, the kind of an Ottoman-ness um, that was encompassing um, of the population uh, in, in the various provinces 
that can be brought forward as kind of a national identity. Um, now, of course, the reason why I say that we can debate the impact of this was because these were individuals who were from elite circles, um, right. well-traveled, um, fairly wealthy from, from usually from kind of um, big families or notable families, but, uh, and, and they had, um, they, they were speaking a language that wasn't necessarily being spoken by the majority of the population. Um, when you say that, do you mean that literally or figuratively? Because I think it's true in both cases. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm, I'm sorry to interject because I'm, I'm sitting on the edge of my seat here as you're, as you're kind of explaining this. The, um, at this stage in the Tanzimat, Turkification was not a goal. Like even in the, even in this image of the new Ottoman gentleman, he wasn't necessarily, and of course I'm speaking in um, um, exclusively in the male sphere because this, this is what was being conceived of at the time, right? Um, but they, uh, they never thought of the new Ottoman gentleman as speaking Turkish exclusively. Uh, so the ethno-linguistic component of modern nationalisms of Europe so Russification, Germanification, all this was not yet happening in the Ottoman Empire. No, um, and it's funny that you that you kind of mentioned that it was predominantly in the male sphere because with European modernity, the gender binary becomes more pronounced, um, and the the kind of the, the, the transition of um, European modernity with regards to the gender binary meant that um, the, the language of public space and private space was um, becoming administratively produced as well. Um, and so what I mean by that is, you know, when we think about the state in Canada or in the UK or France or whatever, um, generally, you know, when we think about the, the public sphere, we think about it being dominated by by kind of males, by by men, um, those who are engaged in politics, traditionally in business, who own property, who are able to vote historically, and then the private sphere is relegated to the women, um, who who are essentially in charge of um, household maintenance. Mm -hmm raising children, kind of national reproduction. And with European modernity, as it was impacting the Ottoman Empire, we see this kind of gender transition as well, where the Ottoman Empire had previously functioned in this, uh, in, in a relation of the inside and the outside rather than the public and the private, where the closer you go to the inside was the center of power, right? That's where, that's where the Sultan sat, um, was kind of inside the harem. Um, mm -hmm. And then everything else happened outside. And so his power was centralized in some ways and kind of going outwards. Um, and that didn't necessarily retain a gender binary because as we know, in the harem, you had men and women, both right. of them who were both, both genders were politically active um, and, and engaged in kind of staking out political claims 
Um, whereas you don't necessarily have that in the creation or the formation of the modern state in Europe. Uh, and that's, I'm, I'm sorry to, to cut you off, but that's so interesting because it was right before the Tanzimat that you had an era that some historians have called the Sultanate of Women. Yeah. It was immediately before that where there was a kind of a belief, and there's a, there's a lot of legitimacy to this belief, that it was actually the wives and the, salt, the, the mothers of the sultans who were pulling all the strings, but they were doing it from behind closed doors. Yeah. Um, is this kind of what you're referring to? So there is that element, right? And there is that period of time that, that the Sultanate of Women did reign to a certain extent, um, right? And, and that's not to overstate it, but there, there was this kind of incredible great power that was held by these women in, in the imperial center, um, in the inner courts. Um, but if you, even if you look outside those, those, um, those imperial courts, women at the time had the right to appear before a judge, though, you know, they, they weren't there. There is debate about um, whether the judge would um, consider their, their pleas as being equal to men. They were still able to do that. Um, women had the right to own property, to um, run businesses, to run charitable organizations, to appear in public spaces, right? Um, and it's primarily only the elite women who were kept away from um, the markets, from being seen outside right. because mm -hmm. they held power. And so it was inappropriate for them to be seen outside, they had to remain inside. Um, and right. so when we talk about kind of, uh, when we talk about the, the historically oppressed Arab or Muslim woman, um, it's really problematic because we're reading it with this kind of um, vision of the public and the private and mm -hmm. not in terms of the political contexts of what inner and outer meant in terms of power and in terms of prestige, right? Mm -hmm. Elite women had the prestige and had the power to stay at home. Right. Did. And as uh, I, I'm sure as uh, the centralization campaigns um, and the, the quote unquote modernization campaigns of the Ottoman Empire spread to the peripheries, I could imagine that elite practices work their way into uh, the lower rungs of the socioeconomic ladder. People tend, typically people tend to imitate the practices of the elite, right? I, I, I would be hard pressed to imagine that that did not happen here. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if they were imitating the elite, but I, th I, I think it had more to do with this process of codification, the, the kind of process of legal codification mm -hmm. where it was no longer up to the judges to decide kind of where the law sat in terms of interpretation. Um, it was now a single law that ran across the Ottoman Empire. And right. That there was a singular interpretation of how that law should be applied with, within the context of, of the gender binary. Um, and that really, that really kind of excuse my language, I don't think there's any other way to put it, but screwed women in, in, yeah, right. in, in, the, in the region because um, it 
effectively took away so many of their rights as as the state making process was enduring. And I think um, we see this, you know, well up into the 20th century when um, you have, for example, the 1919 Egyptian uh, revolts and revolution, um, where women were at the forefront of, of those protests and of those demonstrations. Um, and across Syria, uh, Lebanon, and even Palestine, there were women who were staking claim to their politics, um, to, to their rights, through publications, through kind of associations, right. and through political organizations. Um, but those were then subsumed under the language of nationalism. And so a lot of these women had to compromise on their politics effectively um, in, in a way that um, diminished their diminished their their mobilization around um, where they could be seen, where they could have political rights, where they could sit at the table in order to um, support the anti-colonial nationalist movements and effectively engage in the formation of the independent nation state. And it really does seem that the, um, in the European conception of civilization, and, and believe me, I have a big question there for you in a, in a moment, because that's a central theme of your book, that variance is, uh, viewed almost like a disease, like anything that is not standardized is viewed to kind of, um, to use your words as a civilizational deficiency. So the fact that you could have so many different experiences within the Ottoman empire, traveling from Constantinople to Al-Quds and everything in between, um, the fact that you had so many different experiences and, uh, and I mean experiences of um, institutional experiences. So the way that the court system worked varied wildly from one neighborhood to the next, uh, this was viewed as a civilizational deficiency. This is because they are inherently backward, not that it actually reflects the desires of the indigenous populations or their cultures or anything like that. Um, that that seems to be a, a kind of a central theme here, is it not? Yeah, it totally is, and and that's right. That comes back to that discussion on statehood as this um, as this structure or as this norm of ordering and organization, right? And and kind of the um, the elimination of what is otherwise seen as chaotic, um, and when we talk about this civilizational deficiency. Um, that was that was definitely, I mean, this the getting rid of the civilizational deficiency deficiency was definitely part of the civilizing project. Um, but its kind of intellectual foundations rest on um, racist notions of um, raci racist notions of advancement, right? Where you had um, essentially the, the development of eugenics at this period in the 19th century that looked at social progress as being inherently tied to um, biological um, biological and, and kind of race, racial um, qualities. And so 
the white man sat at the top, the European white man kind of sat at the top of this uh, hierarchy. And then came um, the, the Ottomans or, or the brown man, Muslims in, in what is otherwise called the second civilizational um, category. And then um, after that were the black indigenous Africans um, and, and uh, Australasians who effectively were the closest or seen as the closest to the animal world. Um, and so it was the civilizing project was done in this in this way that was to eliminate the civilizational deficiencies, the racial deficiencies inherent to the Ottoman Empire, inherent to the brown man, um, and to facilitate um, their engagement in what I would call um, white practices um, mm -hmm. or, or kind of white norms of whiteness um, that, you know, that would look a very particular way. Um, and of course, you know, whatever problems that the, that, that the European uh, powers, the French and the British, were trying to fix, um, they were also, you know, they were trying to fix those problems in relation to an ideal type of what they viewed or how they viewed, an ideal type of how they viewed themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and so they were effectively ignoring all the corruption and, and disease and poverty that was happening at home in London and Paris um, <laughs> and arguing that these were the problems that needed to be fixed in the Ottoman Empire in order for the Ottoman Empire. To be <laughs> right. Uh, there um, even, you know, not to, uh, to, to digress too much, but even in relation to gender rights, they were advocating for things in many cases that they did not have at home. Yeah. Uh, so um, in there, you know, what some historians have called the quiet crusade or the peaceful crusade of just sending thousands and thousands and thousands of missionaries all over um, the Ottoman Empire. Um, many of these missionaries were, of course, women, and they were advocating for women's rights that did not exist in Europe at the time, which which I found fascinating in discovering that um, one of the one of the things that I think is. I don't know if it's written anywhere else or this is an exclusively uh, unique contribution that you've made to the to the, um, uh, the the historical discourse is the idea that the the religious minorities in the Middle East constitute different races. So and, and this is one of the things that I enjoyed the most here is the idea that the Orthodox Christians, the Catholics, and the, the Maronites, uh, all of these groups, because they are our civilizational cousins, us being Europe in this case, because they are our civilizational cousins, they cannot be from the same racial group as their Muslim neighbors, so they must be something else. Could you talk a little bit about this? Because I, I thought this was one of the most 
Well, it, it not only um, not only was it fascinating to read in, in such a well articulated way, but it's something that in places like uh, Lebanon still kind of exists in the form of Phoenicianism, right? The the idea that well we're we're of a Phoenician stock, we're not Arabs or something like that. Um, can you can you speak a little bit about this? I mean, in Lebanon, it still exists in the form of of, of Christian fascism, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. But right. um, it effect, yeah, that that is effectively it. The the French um, and the British, to a certain extent, um, justified the the relationships that they were making with various communities, with various religious minority communities across the Syrian provinces, as being natural because they were Christian, they were Catholic, they were um, of the same kind of broad church religion as these European powers. And therefore, um, the they were, as you said, and as I say in the book, civilizational cousins. Now, what this means is that they weren't necessarily of the same race, um, but they were biologically um, more advanced than the Muslim population. And this is what they believed, um, that they were more advanced than the Muslim population or the Turk as they called them. Um, and the reason for that was because of this belief in, in the right God, the belief in the right scripture. Um, and the reason why they hadn't developed as they should have, it was argued, was because they were under the oppressive yoke of, of a Muslim ruler of Islam. And so the, the French in particular sought to free the Maronite population um, by effectively um, forming this relationship with them, by encouraging them, the, encouraging the Maronites to see themselves as, as different to a certain extent, right? You, through this kind of discourse of Phoenicianism, um, we are, and that really becomes prevalent with the rise of Arab nationalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and but, so- but they, but they, but they believe this, uh, again, sorry to, to cut you off. They, this was a biological assumption that they were made. So it wasn't just you are more developed and you are more advanced because you've made different choices, but that somewhere in your ancestral origin, you are from us. You yes. are related to us somehow. And you are our cousins that got lost somewhere along the way. But it, it this was really, really mainstream, right? Like this is uh, the, the, the central way of thinking about these minorities at the time was it was it not it was really mainstream and this is and this is what perplexed the french and the british when they arrived in the syrian provinces in the 19th century i mean it wasn't their first time arriving in the syrian provinces but you know with the kind of administrative changes that were happening in in, um, in britain and in france when they arrived in the syrian provinces the f- one French officer, and I love this quote, and I'm going to get the quote completely wrong, uh, but one <laughs> French officer noticed that the Arabs have mixed and the Turks have mixed with the indigenous populations and you can't tell, and you can't tell the races apart anymore. 
Um, right, right. I, rem so, I remember this. Yeah. And so one way to distinguish the races was to use religion, was to, to kind of look at um, who was Christian, who was not, and understand, um, understand biological development eugenics essentially as being uh, as being tied to um, religious belief um, and this was this was prevalent I mean if you look at the um, the language that was used during the Greek War of Independence um, and the support that was provided during the Greek War of Independence by France Britain and Russia right that 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 support was primarily around this notion of the Greek Orthodox being civilizational cousins being part right. of Europe. Um, and then if you look at the population transfers um, that happened later on as well, um, one did not have to be ethnically Greek and I'm putting that in air quotes. Um, one did not have to be ethnically Greek to move to Greece. One had to be Greek Orthodox to move to Greece. Right. Um, and this still, this has, you know, huge ramifications today. I mean, this has huge ramifications for sectarianism today across, across the region. It also has huge ramifications for um, the refugee, the Syrian refugee crisis where um, Syrian, there were, there were a group of Syrian refugees who during the population swaps were kicked out of Greece from from the island of Crete and moved to Syria. And um, as refugees, they moved back to Crete and found, and, and the population there found that they were speaking a dialect that they had known from their grandparents. Mm -hmm. But they weren't Greek, they were Syrian because of these population swaps and because they were Muslim and they were not Greek Orthodox. Right. Right, but ancestrally right. they were they're from Crete, they're Cretans. Right. Um, so these these notions of identity from that stem from this period of the 19th century were, in my opinion, and I would argue this, were were heavily racialized in various ways. Um, mm -hmm through religion, in particular in the case of, of the Middle East and North Africa, um, but also um, through kind of biological assumptions as well. I, I, I could talk about that all day. And I, I you know, I promise you, I'd, I'd only take about an hour of your time and we're already about 45 minutes in. And I've got a, a few more big questions that I wanna ask you. Um, one of the things, that you go into a, a quite a bit of detail about is the idea of the Tanzimat as an act of anti-colonial resistance, which uh, is a is a sentiment that I I can get on board with. While at the same time, I imagine that for the indigenous populations of the Mashriq, of the Arabic-speaking portion of the Ottoman Empire, they felt very much more like imperial and colonial uh, policies than anti-colonial policies. Um, and so can it be both? I think it can, and I think it is both, right? Because as the Ottoman Empire is being pulled into this world system, um, and as the world system is changing with 
um, kind of uh, kind of exclusions around access to international law in particular, and also the world economy and the way that the world economy functioned, um, the Ottoman Empire saw itself as a great power and wanted to participate in that, but was consistently being rejected. Um, and so to protect itself, in some ways, it tried to modernize like the European powers um, as a way to kind of stave off European interference and European intervention in, into its domestic politics. Um, to what extent this was actually possible, <laughs> right? I mean, history tells us that it wasn't possible that unfortunately, um, you know, the capitulations that were given to the European powers just kind of eroded the Ottoman Empire over time. Um, but the Ottoman Empire itself was a colonial system. It was an imperial system. Um, and so it also needs to be seen that way, right? With the, with the kind of development of the Tanzimat, um, the, the agreed political relations that, um, that, that populations had with the Ottoman imperial center were, were being thrown out the window and new, new relations were being imposed on them that they had never really agreed to. Um, mm -hmm. And so, so one, one such example, there's a, um, I, I don't feel bad about including this because by the time this is, uh, this, <laughs> this gets shared, I will have already released these episodes. But one of the things I mentioned in the podcast is that when an Ottoman tax collector comes to Pulkerim uh, in, in Palestine and he uh, comes to collect, you know, just what they call the tapu, like a land tax, one of the chieftains unsheathes his sword and says, here's your tapu, like here's, here's your tax. So for, for them that this, this uh, just absolutely enormous, absolutely unprecedented um, modernization campaign was so intrusive. It was so, un it was so unbelievably transformative to their life um, that whatever was happening in the theaters of Europe, in the political theater, theater of Europe, do you think the indigenous populations of the Meshra could have, um, would have sympathized with that? I mean, to a certain extent, but also, right, the, the it, it's, it's such a complex web because at the same time that these populations were essentially unhappy with the modernization campaign to a great extent, and particularly right among, um, among Muslims and Christians alike, um, because they both felt like they were being tied into things that they had never agreed to, um, mm -hmm. particularly military conscription or taxation or right. um, uh, loss of loss of power and privilege for the Muslim populations. Um, they at the at the time that you know this anger was being directed to the Ottoman Empire, the European powers were also moving in, and in particular with the Christian communities. Um, and to a certain extent, the Druze community as well with the British, the, right. the European powers were moving in and effectively um, forming relationships and alliances, deepening those alliances with those populations 
um, making it incredibly more difficult for the Ottoman Empire to, to kind of, to at all secure their, their uh, base of legitimacy. Um, and as this was happening, the Muslim population in particular was getting angrier because of course, you know, the, the Christians were getting um, privileged access to European markets, privileged protection from European uh, militaries, privileged protection from European consuls politically, and the Muslim population were kind of looking around and going, well, you know, we've lost out. We're like, we've never agreed to any of this and we need, mm -hmm. to, we need to defend what we had and what we still have. Um, and, uh, and this is this is the eve of 1860, right? Like where uh, things just finally uh, erupt. Yeah. And and um, in reading your book and and others who that capture what was happening in the lead up to to 1860, and then finally in the explosion of the violence, it's really hard to pinpoint um, who through the first punch, right? Or like, what was the, because that's what I was looking for. I, I've known about the, the, um, the massacres of 1860 for some time. And so in preparing for the podcast, I was looking for the, almost like a, like a forensic analysis. If it was in front of this market that these two, but there was just no such thing. It was just a pot set to boil and it all kind of boiled at once. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and that, I think, speaks, and that, that violence speaks to kind of the buildup of all of these aspects, right? The kind of modernization and how that was affecting kind of domestic relations between the populations and, and with the imperial center, but also increased, um, increased reliance on religious identities as a form of political identity. Right, effectively found creating this foundation of sectarianism in a way that um, was hyper hyper mobilized um, towards violence, and that's not to say that there wasn't interreligious violence before um, before the European powers ever kind of came in, but um, there were there were within the Ottoman Empire itself there were mechanisms to deal with that. Mm -hmm. um, that were being eroded through the modernization program. Um, and that, that then sets the tone for, for 1860, but also sets the tone for what comes afterwards, well up into 1919 and 1920, um, right. and, and the establishment of the mandate state system. You know, I, I read your book alongside um, Osama Maqdisi's uh, The Ecumenical Frame. I re read them right side. And the... In fact, I, I will forever recommend that everyone does the same, that these two books really should, because they deal with a very similar time period, although Osama Maqdisi deals much more with the question of, well, who are we then? Um, now that these modernization campaigns are happening, we kind of have to redefine who is the us and who is the them, whereas you deal much more with the um, relationship to Europe's civilizational standard, the constantly shifting goalposts. Um, I, I cite your work so heavily throughout the episodes of the podcast and you'll, you'll get to hear that, um, soon enough on a closing note, 
I want to ask, in your estimation, were the Ottomans successful in creating an Ottoman identity? And it seems almost silly to close on that note because in 2022, we... There, there are very few remnants of the Ottoman identity. But I, so I've, I've recently gone way off the deep end um, doing a lot of research about the 1936 revolt in Palestine. And the, the key players in the lead up to that revolt, not just in Palestine, but in the broader Arab world, were all people who came of age in the Ottoman Empire. And they were very much Ottomans, whether they recognized themselves as such or not. However, all of the key players that I'm looking at here, you know, whether it's um, uh, anti-colonial fighters like Fawzi al-Qawaji, or whether it's intellectuals like Shakib Arsalan, they're very different. And these, these two, just to, to name these two, knew each other very well, but they were very different from one another. Um, one was educated in the Ottoman military system, one did not even have a post-secondary education, and he was very insecure about that. That's Shakib Arsalan. So were they successful in creating an Ottoman identity? Because when I look at this generation of Ottomans, I do see something, something similar, but there were wildly different trajectories. Um, it would be hard if I were to pull them out of a hat and lay these four individuals in front of someone. It would be very hard to say that they were all the products of one place. So what do you think? Were they successful in creating an Ottoman identity? I think to a certain extent they were. Um, but I think that the Ottoman identity that was most successful in the Syrian provinces became enmeshed in an Arab nationalism to a certain extent. So I'm not talking about the, the policies of Turkification that came later, but the very, um, the, the, I don't wanna say liberal, but the more kind of tolerant approach to, um, to, to Ottomanism. Um, I mean, when I look at, for example, pictures of my great grandfather, um, Habib Farha, he never went anywhere without his tadwush, without his fez, right? Okay. Um, and that, that is in itself a symbol of kind of the Ottoman Empire, the modern Ottoman Empire to a certain extent. Um, and that was, you know, I think those symbols carried forward into a, a kind of Arab nationalism, a pan-Arabism, that emerges later on that gets kind of intertwined with these symbols. Um, so I do think that there was success there and I think that it, that it was successful in laying those foundations in particular. Um, <laughs> now, it's funny because when I talk to friends at you know dinner or um, when we're out having coffee and we get onto the subject of, of modern day Turkey, Right, it, people generally people generally assume that the Republic of Turkey is the same thing as the Ottoman Empire. Right, they're natural <laughs> that they're naturally kind of um, 
that they naturally kind of bleed into each other. And I would, to a certain extent, they do, particularly if you're looking at the politics of the Committee of Union and Progress, which was the, which effectively was the last reigning party of the Ottoman Empire. But the tradition of Ottomanism goes back much further than that. Um, right. And, and so there's a, there's a very, there, there's a very kind of distinct politics of the Ottoman Empire that cannot, that doesn't, it's not fair to necessarily associate with the Republic of Turkey um, and, and kind of the politics of the Republic of Turkey in its relationship with the rest of the region. Um, and so when we talk about that Ottoman identity, it being successful, right? We're not talking about the success of the Turks in kind of establishing their state or right. establishing their nation. We're talking about something that is much older, and much more kind of historically written into the bedrock of society at that time. And I feel like that in particular has died out over the generations, right? right. And, it, and it's died out because of various conflicts and wars and um, the development of the nation state and this, kind of the the nationalism of the state itself um but just two generations ago right like as you were saying um it was still very much there and it was still very much pronounced mm -hmm. uh that is a a perfect place to end off um andrew thank you so much for spending the time and entertaining all of my tangents <laughs> thank you for having me thank you for inviting me and thank you for reading my book <laughs> and, and i i i read it uh so closely and uh i, I will after this I'll, I'll show you screenshots of the notes that i the notes that i took reading through it and you're going to hear your name a lot as you listen to the episodes of the podcast um but uh i hope to have you on again would yeah, you like that, it would, you, would, would you mind would you mind coming on again i'd really appreciate it i would love that i would love that absolutely and thank you that's, that's so incredibly humbling thank you so much <laughs> thank you all right well enjoy the rest of your uh, afternoon and uh thank you everyone for listening and uh bye for now <laughs>